We come now to the preaching of God's Word, which is in Romans chapter 5 and verses 10 and 11. There we read, For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. As you survey all of creation, you will never be able to discover such a change as has taken place in a sinner converted by God's grace. There's no change like unto that. There are many changes, of course, but there's nothing so radical, so true, so abundant as the change that takes place by God's grace. And we have a little glimpse of that in the passage before us. We see his state. We see his expectation. We see his focus of delight. All of it perfectly changed. And you'll notice that all of this is because of Christ. Christ is the cause of this change. The one who stood condemned by his sin, now justified, finds that change because of Christ. The one who once hated God as his enemy, now delights in God as a lover and praising God, has found that change because of Christ. The one who only had the certain expectation of condemnation and now has the certain expectation of utter and full deliverance, has that change because of the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole of the change that is brought upon a sinner by God's grace is because of our Savior Jesus Christ. Notice the text itself that Paul is continuing an argument. And so, in some sense, it begins well before, but you can see it at the beginning of this chapter. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's a benefit, he says, of justification. That since we are justified, declared righteous, one of the benefits that comes from that is the fact of our peace with God. That though it is right to speak of God uh, being displeased and even angry with our sins, yet the, declared, the, the sinner declared righteous no longer has the wrath of God upon him, but is in a state of peace. And so even the chastisements and uh, those disciplinary measures that the Lord takes with his people are not because he is casting them down to destroy them, but he's lovingly coming, correcting them to aid them in their walk. All that the believer has in Christ now is a state of of peace. We have access into this grace. And even in the midst of tribulation, he says, we have the ability to press on and endure. And this grows and matures into hope and all of these other blessings as well. You notice he traces them all to this. Verse 8 God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If verse 8 were all the summary of all the total spectrum of salvation, we would have that which would lead us to praise God forever. And yet it's not all that is salvation. Because he says, much more than this being true, here's something else to consider. 
being now justified by his blood, being declared righteous by the sacrifice of Christ, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And so Paul is taking us from our present state and he's taking us to look to the future horizon. And it's that which takes up more in our text. And he presents the argument. If it's so that when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. So when we hated God, we were given peace by the blood of Christ, his death. Notice he says again, much more being reconciled now that we're in a state of friendship and not enmity now that we are those who are at peace with God and no longer enemies of God now that we've been translated into this better place he says we have much more reason he says to rejoice in this that we shall be saved by his life his death has redeemed us and yet his life continues to minister saving grace unto us now and in the life to come. He says, not only so. In other words, not only the benefits that come to us, but notice verse 11. We also joy in God. It's not just what we get from God, but our whole orientation is now switched from us to God. Of course, you see this again and again in little uh, glimpses into the saints' lives recorded in the scriptures as they love to praise God. There's ten lepers healed. One is uh, brought to do what? Give glory to God and give thanks to Christ. His orientation is transformed. And we see this uh, with uh, the demoniac who is healed by God and longs to be with Christ and give thanks and praise to Him. And yet he's faithful to Christ who sent him to tell others of the glorious works of God. The earnest desire of the believer is now oriented toward God to worship, to praise him. And here's the great delight of the Christian. That whereas that's begun, it shall be perfected on the last day. And so every glimpse of heaven that is afforded to us presents us a fixation of soul of the departed saints upon God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Every anticipation of heaven is the gladdening of the soul in the worship of God through Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is getting at. We also joy, literally in the Greek, it's we boast, we glory in God. We no longer glory in ourselves as the petty and vain men of this world do. We no longer vaunt ourselves and puff out our chests and say, look at me, because we've seen what we are in ourselves. Rather, we've been brought to wonder at the glory of God, and we boast in Him. And we do so, however, yet through a mediator. We don't draw near to God, as it were, on our own, but we draw near to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ought to remember that we still and always will have a great and high priest. We always have Christ. And what a blessed thought to remember that for endless ages, he shall always remain the God-man. He's never going to cast off 
his humanity. He's bound that to himself. And as such, he will ever be our high priest by whom we worship God and give glory to God in heaven. Well, this, of course, Paul concludes by saying, by whom, that is, by our Lord Jesus Christ, we have now received the atonement, or as the margin better translates it, the effect of the atonement, which is reconciliation. And so this fact of our present reconciliation by Christ is a testimony of what we have now and of what we shall have hereafter. So the believer who was once God's enemy is now made God's friend, and this by Christ Jesus. And this leads him to praise God and boast in him now and always. Well, consider then three things for us this evening. Firstly, to help us better reflect upon the great privilege we have, consider our condition before Christ. And secondly, Christ's work for us. And finally, our condition after Christ. So the first in our condition before Christ. The passage itself is quite simple. Notice in verse 10, when we were enemies, and oh, what enemies we were. The word enemy is a word that can be generalized in our thoughts pretty quickly. We think of friend and enemy, that's right. But the Greek is the idea of hating and turning that act of hating into uh, a person. We were haters of God. And so the idea of enemy is not just some sort of person out there that's on a different side of a battle, a different position, but the idea of the word is that we were haters of God. And of course, it is that sin is so subtle that it is difficult to persuade men in their natural state that they are haters of God. But it's intriguing to us how Paul actually labors this point quite clearly. If you were to survey Romans and you come from chapter 1 through chapter 2 and chapter 3, what Paul is presenting is the fact that all men by nature hate God. Now, they don't show it in all the same ways and the different varieties and so on, but the fact is there. You see it quite simple, simply in chapter 3 when he's saying, listen, I'm not just talking about the Gentiles, those outside of the visible church, talking even about the Jews under the Old Testament. And he says in verse 10, by nature, of course, verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. And so on. You remember, of course, that in our last week, we were considering Psalm 51 and the fact of original sin. And this is that plague that is plaguing all mankind by nature, that from our inmost being, we don't love God. In fact, we despise God. We don't want God. We want God to go away. We want ourselves to have our own abilities and our own lives and our own ways. And of course, this shows itself in thoughts and actions and speech. Notice how Paul presents this in Colossians in chapter 1, a very similar uh, statement, Colossians and chapter 1, and there at verse 21. 
he writing to the Colossians speaks again of peace through the blood of his cross, verse 20. In verse 21, you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. Notice what they were. They were estranged from God, and through their minds they were enemies of God. It reminds us, of course, that the seat, the, 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 the fountain of depravity is not in our actions. That's the display of our depravity. The fountain of it is from our hearts. It's from the deep parts of our desires. And so no matter of no manner of reform outwardly can fix the deep-seated problem. We can train someone to do this and do that and go through the motions, but none of those things can penetrate and transform the very issue because the condition of a sinner before Christ is not an ill-mannered and inept social creature, but rather a despiser of God, one who hates God, one who is his enemy. This doesn't mean we shouldn't be diligent to train in right practices and habits and other things, or that the law should be cast off and uh, we should just say, well, why should we uh, uh, legislate morality because people hate morality? That's nonsense. Uh, The civil law is to be a reflection of God's moral law, and these things are right and good. But we do not mistake a well-regulated society with conversion. So when Calvin sees Geneva set up, he still preaches searching sermons to his hearers, by the way, who would come daily to hear the word of God preached. And he's speaking about their need to repent and believe, though in their general society it was well-ordered and functioning largely according to the mind of God. Why would Calvin do that? Because he saw, as the scriptures teach, that it's not our outward regulated behavior that is ultimately the problem or the solution. The problem is a heart that despises God. And the solution is the grace of God through Christ that transforms. This is our condition. We were enemies. But with that was the fact that our condition before Christ brings with it the fact of no hope. And so Paul elsewhere will speak of that we were without God and without hope in the world. There's no hope for salvation, no expectation, but a certain and fearful looking forward to judgment. In other words, nothing in us was calling for or demanding God show the slightest display of mercy. This is why still we say, that we are not worthy of the least of thy mercies, and that God has not treated us according to our sins. The sinner outside of Christ has no ground, no reason in himself to have any expectation other than this, that God who is just and holy against whom he sinned and whom he despises should bring forth that dreaded judgment which is everywhere assured to come to pass. And as we mentioned this morning, the only thing that the sinner outside of Christ should expect, apart from God being gracious, is that on the last day he will hear Christ say, depart from me, ye accursed. 
And oh, the boldness of proud and arrogant sinners today to say, so what? So it will be, and I'll endure. But on that day, when the door of mercy slams shut and the door of judgment opens up, it will be so that the horrors will grip them and they will see what fools they have been. Now, brethren, we speak not here of God's decree of his loving election, but we speak here of the fact of our state in this world before the application of God's grace. What we've just said generally of sinners is true of us before grace. We, notice when we, it's interesting, Paul doesn't say if when you Gentiles were enemies, Paul was in God's covenant. And yet he says, when we were enemies. It is not that God commended his love toward you, while yet you were sinners. Christ died for you, Gentiles in Rome. But rather, when we were sinners, God commended his love toward us. Christ died for us. The point is this. The covenant is not the same as salvation. It's not sufficient to say, children of the covenant, I have the covenant of grace, therefore I'm not God's enemy. That's biblically unfounded. What's to be reasoned is this, though God's enemy by nature, God in His mercy has surrounded me with the testimonies of the gospel. And He's singled me out by baptism and said, I will be your God. I will have you as mine. And in all of the administration of the gospel through the covenant, He's holding forth promises and providing these things to us. And He's calling upon us to repent and believe the gospel, just as under the old covenant. He says, listen, you need to be circumcised outwardly. But then he exhorts his people, circumcise the foreskin of your hearts. And so the covenant comes to us not because as an infant we've been saved, not because as an infant we're not enemies, but rather because God is displaying his mercy to us and saying, I would call you unto salvation. Because by nature, even the youngest of children in God's covenant apart from God's saving grace is yet in his heart an enemy of God. But brethren, notice Christ's work for us. The work is astounding because it's a work for those who were enemies. Remember what this means. It's a work for those who hated God who despised God. What's this work? Well, first and foremost, as emphasized, it's his death. And so this is brought up again and again. Verse 6, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. In verse 8, Christ died for us. In verse 9, by his blood. In verse 10, by the death of his son. And so on. Now consider well whose death it is. Notice how Paul presents it in verse 10. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Now, it doesn't take much to understand this grammatically. 
We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Whose Son? God's Son. The Son of God. Now, consider this. God, who is the one hated by His people who shall be saved, is the God who sends His Son to die on their behalf. So notice the actor active in all of this is God. God is the one who has set his love upon his chosen people. God is the one who has sent his son for his chosen people. And it's the son of God, the person of the son of God, equal to the father and the spirit in glory and dignity because one God, it's he who dies. And thus the importance of the incarnation. You see this wondrously and well stated in Philippians in chapter 2. And Paul is exhorting us unto loving one another. He appeals to this magnificent testimony in chapter 2 verse 5 of Philippians. That we're to have the same mind which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That is he didn't think it was something, as it were, to be attained and grasped onto. Why? Because he is God. But here's the wonder. He made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Not something similar to men, but the same likeness, the same kind. He took on their nature and being found in fashion as a man, He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so the Son of God, glorious in himself, takes to himself a true human nature, body and soul, and in that nature dies. It's the Son of God incarnate who offers up himself and his humanity to die. Why? Notice, For us. Now it's important throughout this to see all of those pronouns in context. It's not generalized to the world. It's specified to the saints in Rome and by extension to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If when we were sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And so Christ's death is for his people. But notice it's not his people loving him. It's not even that he died for them believing upon him. He died for them while they were yet sinners. And so it goes on testifying of this wonder. What's the effect of this death? Well, this is that which reconciles to God. Now here's the point. It's not that we're striving to be reconciled with God. Remember, the posture of the sinner before grace is fleeing from God, despising God. What God has done for us in Christ is he, having set his love of salvation upon us, has sent his son to remove the cause of enmity by which then he should bring forth condemnation upon us who hated him. And so this idea that we were reconciled to God by the death of his son is not something that we found out and said, here's the way. It's rather God who has established this way for us while we yet hated him. 
And this is the magnitude of his kindness for us, that while we were hating him, yet what was God doing? He was giving us his son to suffer the consequences of our sins, the effect of which is to bring us into a state of peace. Now, of course, Paul's already established that it is by faith we're justified, right? Verse 1, therefore being declared righteous, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. But here what Paul's getting at is the payment for our reconciliation was given prior to faith. The cause of our reconciliation was established by Christ, which then is embraced by the gift of faith. But notice all of this is taking place on our behalf while we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies of God. So what Paul's presented is one part of his argument. The first part of which is this, when we were yet enemies of God, hating God, God showed his love to us, as he says in verse 8, by commending it, by giving us his son to die for us. That's one part. But notice, there's a continued work of God, that now being reconciled, now grace having been given to have faith and take hold of Christ, that we're in a state of reconciliation. He says, we shall be saved by his life. Now, what's Paul getting at? Christ's death reconciles us. His life has an ongoing impact saving us. Now, Paul makes much of this throughout his writings. We see it as well in the book of Hebrews that Christ did what? Well, he offered up himself. He died, was buried, rose again. He ascended into heaven to do what? To sleep off the rest of time. No, to sit enthroned as the king and head of the church, to govern, to gift to the church all that is needed, that through the various offices provided and officers of the church, he should be building up his church and causing them to mature, that he sends forth his spirit into the lives of his people to sanctify them, to lead them to pray, to lead them to persevere. He's making intercession, pleading his merit, his sacrifice for the reason of present blessing upon his people. He ever lives to make intercession for the church. He's right now by his life causing the grace of God to flow, as it were, onto each of his people. In other words, it's not as if you think of sports for a moment, some crisis moment in this game comes to pass and the hero of the game steps up and scores the goal or blocks the shot or does whatever and the action is done over and just celebrated. It's that the act has been done that procures our reconciliation and the hero keeps acting, not in the dying again and again and again, But in his resurrected and glorified and exalted life, he is continuing to govern and guide and direct the grace of God to his people. Brethren, here's the truth. His life is still a life of saving his people. It's not that he dies again. He once offered up himself and he's made atonement for our sins. There's no atonement further needed. There's no renewing of the atonement required. It's perfected. It's finished. It's done. 
but the applying of all of the benefits which we need in order for a life glorifying and honoring God is continued to be mediated by him unto us. That when you and I close our eyes tonight, should the Lord give us that privilege and we sleep, Christ's eyes are not closed, but he's watching over and directing and guiding and preserving and helping and advancing his cause in his people. He's remembering those who are afflicted and he's giving them strength to persevere. Even when it is they feel themselves worn down and wearying through all of the drudgery of their affliction. Yet it's Christ who is enlivening them to persevere. It's Christ who is active for them. That when he brings to their mind their present sin and he makes them to see their temptation, that he then by his grace most perfectly leads them to flee to Christ and say, I need your grace. I have no hope but that you would bless me by your spirit to put to death the deeds of the body that I may live. Christ is active by his life reigning in heaven now on behalf of every believer that now is and that shall be. The continued work of Christ secures our ultimate and final and glorified salvation. And so he's giving us grace to be sanctified and to persevere. And think of this, I mean, this is very obvious. It's that when he returns, the living king returns, that in that instant, we shall be instantaneously transformed to be glorified like unto him. And so the dead shall rise and be transformed and meet him. And those living shall rise and ascend and meet him and shall come with him to judge heaven and earth. And all of that by the power and work of our living Savior. What a reminder to us the angel gives to those who were closing in upon the tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do you seek the living among the dead? We don't have a dead Savior. We don't put up crucifixes in our churches, not only because it would be idolatrous to image forth one who is God, but because it fixes our attention upon one as if still dead and dying. But we don't have a dead or dying Savior. We have an exalted and glorified Savior whose life continues to minister grace for our soul's salvation. So Paul's argument, think of this, if while we hated God, he saved and reconciled us, How much more now that being reconciled to God, the Lord who lives shall continue to sustain and bless us to save us unto the end. Brethren, this is no little help in the midst of discouraging days. When we step back and we cave into the temptation to become overwhelmed and overburdened and cast down and say there's no hope there's no hope in you or me and ourselves there's no hope in the church itself but there is hope in the Lord Jesus Christ who lives when he dies when he ceases to be you're permitted to lose hope when he stops serving as the living king you're allowed to panic 
When he comes off of his throne and says, I'm done, I'm handing over the reins to somebody else, you're allowed to lose all of your hope. But until that day, there is nothing that warrants the slightest cause of losing hope to the believer because we have a living Savior who reigns now and forever. The reason you and I struggle with hope and hopelessness is because we frequently remove our attention from Christ. We eye our circumstances and make much of them, and doing so, we make little of a living and reigning king. But so soon as we lift our eyes through the circumstances unto the reigning king, then we have our hope renewed. Because Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us while we were yet enemies, loves us still and serves us still as we are now by his grace, his friends. Notice then thirdly, our condition after Christ, not by that meaning something like we pass by Christ, but after Christ has exercised his grace. Well, Paul emphasizes that one thing that comes by way of that is that we're reconciled. And so you see that in verse 10, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And again in verse 11, that it's through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement or better, the reconciliation. And so this work of Christ has brought us into an estate of friendship. Now, there's much by way of our culture that actually reduces the significance of that idea and makes it empty of its dignity. And so you hear so-called Christian pop songs, if you have the stomach to listen to that, and you can hear the nonsense of these almost love song lyrics, which are bereft of any dignity. And it is a mockery of what true friendship is with God. But we ought not to say, therefore, we don't speak of friendship with God. No, far otherwise. We speak of that friendship with God with the dignity that scriptures speak of it. And it's Christ who says, I now call you friends. It's God's word who says, though you were enemies, now you are reconciled. Now you're brought to be friends with God. It's God who gave this great commendation that his servant of old was the friend of God. And brother and sister, think of this for a moment. In Christ, whatever other friends you have, you are made the friend of God. God whom you have sinned against. And you're right. And your conscience is right. I have no right in myself to call upon him as my friend. And you can think about this in a variety of ways. By nature, he is infinitely more than I am. I'm but dust. He is eternal spirit. How can one so small have such a privilege with one so great? We can be right to say, I have sinned against him and I'm unworthy of him. He is perfectly pure and I'm still mixed with my wrestlings with sin and temptation and faith and obedience. How could I call him as my friend? Brethren, 
The reason is because of Christ. Christ has reconciled us. You didn't cause God to be reconciled. God sent forth His Son to reconcile you unto a state of friendship. And so it's God who is, we mean nothing trivial by this, the best friend unto us because He has sought us out and He has turned us from our demise. He's turned us from our contorted, twisted depravity and He's taken us from the estate of condemnation and cursedness and brought us unto life and He's given us the richest beauty of holiness and He's brought us from undignified nonsense unto the highest heights of dignity that we should have God as our friend. How was that brought to pass? By the death of His Son for us. But notice the condition is not just focused, as it were, upon the benefits to us which are innumerable. And indeed, as we've sung, I love the Lord because my prayers and voice He did hear. But notice, there's a conditional change, a change of our condition from those who hated God to those now consumed with God. Not only so, verse 11, but we also joy or better boast or glory in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the sinner before grace is consumed with himself. He's full of me and my and my time and my wants and my desires and all of me and such. But the sinner converted and saved by grace is now consumed with God. In one sense, it makes the person small because the person sees the glory of God mediated by the Lord Jesus Christ and sees here is what I should focus on. And so though we have to learn these things and we struggle and we stumble and trip and fall by our sins, yet by God's grace, we find it to take root in our lives such that we, we hear Christ say, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And by God's grace, we start to realize what else would I seek? What else has such dignity and abundance of glory? What else is worthy of my time and my energy and my finances and my sacrifice? What other thing is there that is so worthy of all that I am? It's the miserly sinner that hears Paul say that we're to glorify God in our body and soul with our eating and drinking with all that we are. And that sinner thinks, well, that seems a bit much. But the saint who's been saved says, all too little. My time, my eating, my drinking, all that I am to such a glorious God is infinitely beneath what he is worthy of. And so it's no wonder that there are psalms that are given to us as the expressions of our hearts that are pleading with God to advance and multiply His kingdom, that others would be brought for what purpose? To praise 
the name of God. One of the greatest privileges of being raised in a Christian church is in the Lord's ordering of things. When you're young, you can have the privilege of having older saints and they can speak so frequently of the love of God and the expectation of heaven. One of the fondest memories for which I bless God as a child is having a row of elderly believers and after services, they're frequent testifying with joyous faces of the love of Christ and the expectation of heaven. And for those of you who are nearing that age, you ought to lead the charge in praising God. Your lips should not be silent. There are young people here who need to know by experience that there is a reality of grace that has transformed sinners to love God, to joy in God, to worship God. They need to see in your lives the testimony that God is worthy of all that you have. They need to see in your lives, your speech, your conduct, that you have come face to face with one who is worthy of everything because there are so many in this world who are clawing after the youth of our generation and bringing them to think that there are other things that are worthier than God. But to you who have been saved and who now are aging in your life in this world, it is for you to be the example of one who knows God who loves God, who worships God, and who does so with delight. But it's not just for those who have walked with God for years, because it's to characterize everyone who has been reconciled and saved. Not only so, but we also, not just the elderly, not just those who are aging, but all who have been reconciled boast and glory in God. And so it is to be for us. Yes, there's need for practical tidbits and wisdom and things of that sort. Of course there is. But all of that should be overwhelmed by this orientation of our soul that we know one who is glorious and who is lovely and who is worthy of all that we have. And the reason, of course, is because he is glorious and beautiful and good and gracious and worthy of all that we have. The believer is one who hated God, but by God's grace through Jesus Christ now delights in God. Catechism opens with that well-known question, what is the chief end of man? And it's well for us to think well on that answer, which summarizes the scriptures that man's chief end is to glorify and enjoy. Glorify God and enjoy him. Well, as we, by God's grace, are conformed more and more, our lives ought to show this forth to others. We glorify God and we enjoy him. There's no greater joy then God, but notice, through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not God abstracted in some philosophical reasoning. 
It's God known through the Lord Jesus Christ. Luther spake well of this, of course, when he spoke of God outside of Christ, terrifying and consuming, but God in and by Christ at peace and known in love. And what a blessing it is that we have been privileged not to reason from nature to realize there is a God, only to discover that we've sinned against this God and have terror awaiting us, but that God has pursued us in the knowledge of Christ to know him through Jesus, the Savior, who saves us both from our enmity and from the power as well of our sins. Well, believer, you ought to consider well what cause for hope you have. You have a cause that is unlike any other in this world. It's true, relatively speaking, there are reasons at times that we can say, I have cause for hope. You know, someone's sick with a significant illness and the doctor comes and says, well, we've just seen a turning of the health and there's cause and reason to expect that recovery will be had. And we can reasonably say, well, that's good news. And yet... How many times has the doctor or the agent of the doctor had to return to that room and say, well, what we took for a sign of encouragement has turned now and it seems that all hope is lost. Believer, think of this for a moment. Never once in the Bible is there a testimony given to the believer. Well, there's reason to hope only to find out later. Now that reason is gone. Because the reason for the believer's hope is a nothing conditional in this world. It's a nothing circumstantial surrounding us. It's founded upon the risen and exalted Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's your reason for hope. By Him, you've been reconciled. By Him, you have been forgiven and justified and are being saved unto glorification. This is yours. By grace, through Christ. You can say, but my sins are mighty and strong. You're right. And they're worse than you think. But your Savior is stronger and mightier and able to overcome. We have God who is able to do exceeding above what we ask or think. And He does so through Jesus Christ. And so it is we have cause for hope in the midst of this world And think for a moment what a change is yours. You, an enemy who hated God, are now brought to love God. You who fled from God, as did Adam and Eve, are now brought by His Word to flock to God. You're now one who says in the voice of the psalmist, I joyed when to the house of God go up, they said to me. There was a day when I used to despise it and say, is Sunday come again? Is the time of worship come again? Do I have to go and worship Him? But now the day comes and you with jubilation say, I rejoice to draw near to God. What's the cause of that change? It's not because you got wiser by your natural learning and progression and maturity. It's because God has changed you and has brought you who hated God to love God. And think of what that is. You who despised what is good have now by grace been brought to love what is good. Yours is all the benefit. Yours is all the encouragement. And it's all done by the work 
of God through Jesus Christ. So here then, brethren, is a cause now and forever to rejoice in God who has befriended you and reconciled you by grace through Jesus Christ. And what's more, as we will have occasion in our lives to look back and say, oh, that I had better worshipped and better thanked and better praised God, always take note of this, that there is a day coming for the believer when all shall be praise to God. And whereas we stumble and struggle and it hits our conscience and it strikes us in discordance and struggles in our souls, yet the believer looks forward to the day when he shall be perfected by grace and glory. And what then? The whole of our being will be overwhelmed with constant delight in God and praising God time without end. And it will strike you most clearly then, as sometimes it does now, that all of that privilege, all of that joy, all of that gladness, all of that glory is because of God through Jesus Christ for you. Stand with me then for prayer.